Uh, hey, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the, the pastors here at All of Life, and what I am about to tell you is uh, true, but not recommended. This is one of those moments where it's like, hey, I'm going to say something, and I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just being honest about the way life works sometimes. I'm in a long process of understanding my own relationship with praise and the ways that I want praise and earn praise. Uh, often I work hard to get praise from people. Oftentimes I anticipate with excitement how impressed people will be when I do a good job or I've got a good sermon or I've got a good email, right? I get excited to look forward to and people say, hey, thanks, thank you for that. That was really good. The problem is when those compliments come, if they come at all, my, my kind of like, Double-minded heart often does not actually believe them. I'm eager and hungry for the praise, but then when it comes, something inside me says, well, they're just trying to encourage. Like, they don't actually, they're not impressed by you, right? Or I find that if I am able to receive it, it wears off quickly and I'm back looking for the next bit of attention. Does that ring true for you at all? The human heart yearns. The human heart yearns to matter. I think all of us have this. But we often tend to think that in order to matter, we need to be great or to do things greatly, right? Sometimes that plays itself out where we look to physically be above others, right? Be on an elevated platform looking out. Sometimes it, pl it plays itself out where we look to be superior in our behavior or our pay or the, the amount of weight that our voice carries. So for some of us, this takes on a slightly more entitled edge, Others of us, it takes on a slightly more insecure edge. Here's what that might look like. Uh, for a more entitled perspective, it might be something like this. I matter so much that I'm going to work really hard to gain influence, status, position, because I deserve to be great and recognized. Others of us on the more insecure spectrum would say something like, no, I don't actually matter unless someone else tells me that I do. Therefore, I will work to amass influence, status, position, praise, whatever, because I need it. Because if I want to matter, I need greatness. Uh, there's a little journal, an online thing called the Harvard Business Review, and a, a blogger and a success coach named Ron Carucci wrote an article titled this, Why Success Does Not Lead to Satisfaction. Why Success Doesn't Lead to Satisfaction. This guy spent 30 years consulting high-level business executives that on paper have greatness. On paper, they are great in the world, but in real life, they are restless, anxious, and dissatisfied. And you see this all over, all over the news, right? You see it in Hollywood with like Miley Cyrus going crazy, right? You see it with stuff with all, like Brangelina, you see it in government. You even see this in religious success stories, right? People who use whatever's around them to get great, and then that actually leads them to despair and crisis rather than wholeness and long-term contentment. So here's the couple questions that are leading me into this passage today. The first is, what does Jesus say about our hearts need to matter? What does he say about our hearts need to matter? Does he condemn it? Does he justify it? What does he do? Then, what does Jesus say about our pursuit of greatness? Lastly, does Jesus say or satisfy us with anything better than what the world offers? So here's our roadmap for today. I'm going to give a quick uh, review of some of the context in Matthew. What we're looking at today ties into the last couple weeks, so I'm going to set some of that up. Then I'm going to read today's text with you, and then we're just going to work through it top to bottom. I'm going to make some simple commentary, and then at the end, I'm just going to pull out what I think some of the heart for us is today. 
I think it is a main point, but I specifically feel it is something that uh, we as All of Life Church need to hear from our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And it is all about how greatness interacts with the needs of our heart. So let me pray for us and then we'll get going, okay? Father, as we continue, um, Lord, I pray even just that this simple introduction of honesty of my own heart um, would awaken people to your goodness and our need for you, at very least our need for something to satisfy us other than what we've been chasing. Spirit of God, would you come, fill me up with words and clarity, fill us up with hearts ready to hear your good news. Amen. So here's some, some context in Matthew. If you go backwards, oh, let me flip over actually to my passage. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, excuse me, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 28. That's our passage for today, but I'm not going to read that just yet. In fact, I'm going to go backwards to chapter 19, verse 16. I'm not going to read it. I just want to let you know where I'm looking as I'm talking, okay? So this is Matthew 19, verse 16. What's happened is there's this section where Matthew is developing a theme of greatness, versus love. Greatness versus love. This starts in uh, chapter 19 where the rich young ruler comes in, if you guys remember that. The rich young ruler comes in and he is confident in his greatness. He's confident in his status, his wealth, his religiosity, but somehow, just like the men from the Harvard Business Review, he says, I'm short of eternal life. And Jesus' instruction to him is summarized by pointing him to God's second greatest commandment, which is, love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus tells him how to follow up on that, and he gives him the command to go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, follow me. That is how he is instructed to love his neighbor. But the interesting thing, the guy cannot do it. He cannot give up his wealth, he cannot give up his great position in order to take on the lowly position of following Jesus in order to love and serve the lowly and the poor around him. That's what's going on. Now, his disciples see this guy walk off, and here's what they do. They go, oh, well, shoot. We did what that guy couldn't. What do you think Jesus is going to give us? Right? Immediately, they're like, we did what that guy couldn't. Jesus must be so proud of, we've given up everything. What are we going to get? Now, Jesus here is very gentle, and he's kind, and he assures them, like, guys, you have given up everything. And in fact, anyone who's left mother or father or home or lands, like, you'll get more than 100 times back in the kingdom of God. This is, like, this is a return on investment that, I don't think this is numerical, he's just trying to blow our minds with the goodness of the generosity of the kingdom. But then he does this interesting thing. He warns them through a story. He tells them a story about servants who get called by the master to go into the field. Do you guys remember this? Some got called in the morning, some at midday, some at the 11th hour, only one day left of the workday. And Jesus says this interesting thing where the, the first will be last, the last will be first. And this parable highlights where the people who worked very little, the people who worked very little for the master got just as much as the people who worked very hard. And all of it was generous. All of it was a good wage. No one was abused in this interaction. I think what this story is essentially saying to these disciples is these disciples see this rich young guy walk off unable to do what they themselves have done. They have given themselves to a lifelong commitment to faithfulness to Jesus, sacrifice of everything, working in the field, right? I think what Jesus is kind of saying is, hey, even if this rich young man comes back 50 years from now at the end of his life, asks for forgiveness and mercy and a place in my kingdom, I will give it to him. And don't be mad if he gets just as much goodness and grace as you do. This is about 
greatness versus love, paired with teaching as well as real life instruction. Now, notice as we move into today's passage, which I'm about to read, the matter of greatness versus love is still central, but now Jesus is tying it directly to himself. He's tying it directly to his own life of humility, of laying down his life in love to lay aside his greatness through his death and his resurrection to ransom those who will follow him. This is Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Would you read with me? As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death or me to death. They will deliver him or me over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Now, without missing much of a beat on the paper, then the mothers of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared by my father. Now, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and he said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. So what I'd like to do is just kind of work top to bottom, make some commentary, open this passage up a little bit. Uh, What we see right off the bat in verse 17 through 19 is Jesus uh, announcing the next phase of his ministry by foretelling his death and his resurrection for a third time. Uh, The very first time Jesus announced this to his disciples was uh, chapter 16. He did it again in chapter 17. Here is the most detailed of all. And he's saying that he's going to Jerusalem. This is like opening the final chapter of the book, so to speak. He's saying that everything from here on out is going to happen physically in Jerusalem or the immediate vicinity, but all of it will lead to his death. But three days later, it will culminate in his resurrection. So he's saying everything going forward, Jesus is not naively just going to cleanse a few temples, say a little bit of teaching, do a little bit of Passover, and see what happens. He's saying everything going forward is because I, the Son of Man, and he's using that title very intentionally, you remember it's pulled out of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. He's claiming here that it applies to him. And this is the title of the person who will get kingship over the kingdom of God. So Jesus is using this title to remind his followers of who he is, what his mission is in living as well as now going to Jerusalem. And he's saying that his suffering and his death, as well as his resurrection three days later, is for the purpose of establishing a new kingdom. All of it. He's aware of what's about to happen. He's doing it intentionally. It's for the purpose of establishing a new kingdom. Now, I don't know if uh, what happens next is like literally back-to-back with what happened, but on paper, it's pretty intentionally meant to be jarring. We've got Jesus saying in pretty explicit terms, I will be condemned to death. I'll be delivered, given up 
to the Gentiles. I will be mocked, flogged, crucified, killed. I will be in the grave for three days or two days. And on the third day, I will rise. Like this is a heavy moment for the disciples as well as on paper. And Matthew, the author, is chosen to follow that immediately with another seemingly bizarre request. It's a mother coming up and asking for greatness for her sons. Can my boys, can, I, can they sit at your right and your left? Notice it says the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is uh, brothers James and John. You'll remember back in, uh, I believe it was Matthew 17, when Jesus went up on the mountain with his three closest followers for the transfiguration. Do you remember that? This was that James and John. This was some of Jesus' closest disciples. And uh, they were, uh, I think there was cousins of Jesus, or their mom, like an aunt or a cousin to Mary. And so they kind of had this family in, and they were working this bit of an angle of, hey, we're your family. When you have a new kingdom, can we be in on running the thing? And on, on paper, it, it does seem very jarring, but one like, bit of caveat I want to allow for that kind of makes sense is Jesus is saying, I'm going to die brutally, but I'm also going to rise and as the son of man establish a new kingdom. And so it then kind of makes sense for the, the mom and the father to say, great, when you have that kingdom, can I help, can I help run it? Right? It's not ending at death. He's saying it's ending with resurrection and new kingdom. So it does kind of make sense for them to say, great, can I help? It is understandable. Someone's got to be in charge, right? Someone's got to be the number two and number three. Why not? Like, might as well be me, right? Then it moves into verse 22, Jesus' response. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You're asking for something. Your request makes sense, but you just don't know what you're asking for. Because his followers up to this point are continuing to anticipate an earthly kingdom. And Jesus is saying, like, my kingdom in this period of history will not be of this world. So everything will change through Jesus' death and resurrection, but it will not change through national conquest. It will not change through the domination of Rome. This kingdom will be opened at a spiritual level that will renew the hearts and the minds of men and women across the globe. And in a future age, it will culminate in a day of judgment and recreation, new heaven, new earth, far in the future. So they're saying, hey, in three days, you rise, new kingdom, can I be in on it? And he's saying, no, you don't get it. You don't know what you're asking for. But are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, this feels a little bit weird, but in the Old Testament, the cup was used to represent, very, very simply, the destiny of a person. You can get more intricate in that, but that's a good summary. So it's the destiny, the, the path that God has created, what God is holding in store, your portion of life, what he's asking you to walk with faithfulness. And so Jesus, is telling, he has just told his disciples what his cup is, right? To go to Jerusalem, to be handed over, to be beaten, mocked, flogged, to die, and to rise. So when he says, are you able to drink this cup? It's clearly a cup of faithfulness to God through suffering and death, but will end in glorification. So he's asking, are you able to drink the cup? Maybe not of my specifics, but the destiny of, not of conquest and greatness, but a destiny of rejection and suffering prior to resurrection and glory. And their response is probably much like ours when we're rooted up on a Sunday, right? Yeah, we can do it, Jesus! <laughs> we can do it! And, and Jesus' gentleness here, he does not dismiss him. And he, he says, you will, you will drink this cup. He knows that they will be faithful through suffering, but Jesus also knows 
they will not be faithful in Jerusalem. In the coming days, when Jesus is imprisoned and killed, they will scatter. They will see danger and they will bolt. And when Jesus is dead, they will be confused and scared. And when they hear rumors that he's been resurrected, they won't believe it until he shows up. But for James and John and so many other disciples, before their lives are over, they will learn faithfulness. They will follow Jesus regardless of what it costs them. They will not dominate, they will not conquer, and they will not out-bully the powers of the world, but they will stay faithful to Jesus above all, even to the point of death and suffering. James, brother Zebedee, was killed in Acts chapter 12 by Herod. John, brother Zebedee, was arrested. He lived the end of his life in exile and imprisonment. So many other followers of Jesus from this time period and beyond have stayed faithful to King Jesus, knowing the path ahead of them is not conquest and victory and success in the world's eyes. It is suffering, dying to the things of the world to receive future resurrection and glory. And all of this is good. These men, when they say, we are able, and Jesus says, you will be able, It amazes me that these men, after they scatter in Jerusalem, but once they come back together, seeing the risen king, it's after that moment of the resurrected Jesus that they see with their own eyes, it's after they understand that Jesus has ransomed them through his death, that he has liberated them through his death, it's after that they're so overwhelmed by the goodness and the generosity of Jesus that they're then motivated to lay down their lives in the future. It's after they've experienced the risen king, laid down their lives to ransom them, then they are able to respond with lifelong faithfulness on a path of suffering in order to give up everything for the kingdom of God. And even here, I'm so shocked by Jesus. He he says all this, it's so loaded with meaning. And then he says this interesting thing in verse 23. This son of man, this all-powerful king says, Hey, to sit at my right and my left hand, that's not, my, that's not mine to call. It's, it's for those for whom my father's prepared it. And this is this little Easter egg. It's a nod to the first and the last. It's a nod to the first and the last that we had before. He's not saying, great, whoever got in earliest, whoever's going to lay out the most, he's saying, all of this is prepared in grace by my father. All of it is prepared All of it will be an act of God's generosity, just like the parable of the workers in the field. Whether you are first or last, all of it is an act of God's generosity. So, we don't know who will be in those positions of honor, if those will actually be a thing, or if this is just a metaphor. But what we do know is it's reserved for somebody as an act of grace. One commentator, and I was caught up by the the poetry of this, kind of just noodled. He wasn't trying to make a point. He was just wondering, what if the position of honor at the right or the left hand of Jesus was, is going to be given to the, the thief who died next to Jesus? The man who literally at the 11th hour of his death brought nothing to the kingdom of God, but who at the end of his life said, truly you are the son of God. And Jesus says, you will be with me in my kingdom tomorrow. How beautiful would it be How good of a kingdom and a God would it be if that's the guy who gets the place of honor? Not not you and I who are counting what we did and haven't done and, and trying to get to the top of the ladder, but just by the generosity of God, it's the guy who literally brought nothing but an hour's worth of repentance. 
to me, that is so gorgeous as a way of generosity in the world. As we look to verse 24, it's interesting, the group's response. They hear about James and John. Maybe it's a couple minutes later. Maybe it's the day later. And they're just indignant. They're mad. They get into an argument so bad that Jesus overhears them and then has to intervene and call everyone together. It's like, guys, guys, hang on. We need to get this clear. Interestingly to me, their sense of indignation is probably not because they like understand it so clearly. They're not saying, James, John, you guys don't get it. God's, God's kingdom's all about generosity and grace and the first and the last. Like, you guys don't get it. They're probably like, wait, wait, no, I want to be first. You can't ask him. You, like, you went behind our back, right? They're probably angling for the very same positions of honor. So their indignation reveals that they also need to be taught and trained in the kingdom of God. And this little um, microcosm, this little pocket of disciples uh, is not um, unique to itself. They are displaying for us the way the hearts of men and women work across the globe, right? This isn't just 12 dudes who have an ego problem. This is humanity without the kingdom of God. How do we respond if there's a threat that someone will get what we want? And real simply, this is a warning to any, it's a warning about worldly ambition infecting Christian leadership. Bare surface, like it's a warning about worldly ambition in Christian leadership. So then Jesus corrects them, verse 25, and here's my kind of summary of what he's saying. He's saying, look, what you guys are doing right now, vying for power, vying for greatness, it is just like everyone else. It's just like everyone else outside of my kingdom. Everyone thinks life is about greatness, and everyone thinks life is about a position of control over others. Do not be like them. What Jesus is doing here, like I said, he's not just talking to a group of 12. He's saying something to a group of 12 that applies to everyone everywhere. He's explaining something good about the way the human heart is supposed to work and the way the kingdom will be and the way the kingdom should be here on earth as it is in heaven. I think what Jesus is saying is that when people's hearts are restored back into the way humanity is supposed to be, back into the likeness of Jesus, sinless, perfect human. When people are restored back into this way, they serve. That's what they do. When you're restored, you serve. That's the byproduct of your restoration and your healing, is service. So true greatness, then, is to be like God. True greatness is to be like God who gives himself in love for others. So here's one really easy application if you're wanting to engage with this. If you want to know, to to tell if your heart is engaged with any position, sorry, let me catch my words. Here's how to know how your heart engages with power and greatness. Here's a quick question. You can ask yourself this. How does you having power over somebody affect them? When you're in a position of power over somebody, how does it affect them? Husband, does the responsibility that you have over your home lead you to serve your wife and family, or do you use that so they serve you? Shift supervisor, does you being your does you having your role help your coworkers and serve your coworkers, or does you having your role serve you? Business owner, is your business 
about serving your employees and serving your clients? Or is it about them and your business serving you? Mother, father, is the way you run your home about your kids serving you or about you serving them? And in a point of application, you might have a position of greatness and power. Those are all questions I would encourage you to ask, but you also might be underneath somebody. And so there's just as much application here. Is there a Christian? Is there a Christian in a position of power or greatness over you that feels like a one-way street? If you are underneath a Christian in authority and it always feels like you're serving them and not the other way around, they are being unfaithful to Jesus. They need repentance and change. Now, hopefully you are in a position of relational safety with them and you can bring this up with love. And I would encourage you to consider, like express how you're feeling with gentleness, with love, with appreciation. But if you feel unsafe doing that, that is a huge red flag whether it's in the work environment or the home. If this is a home situation, we at All of Life Church are available to help you explore if that's true, what's true, what's not. And if you need options to find safety to express that, we would love to help. And I don't say that flippantly. I think what Jesus is doing in big picture terms here, when he's redefining greatness and service, this is a little bit cheesy, but bear with me. I think what he's saying is, It is not the human race. Human race, meaning this thing where we're all like shoulder to shoulder struggling to get ahead. Who's going to be first, right? Humanity is not meant to be a race. Humanity is meant to be a family. That's why Jesus, when he redeems his people, he brings them together and says, you now are brothers and sisters. You show your faith to me by loving one another. Because this is no longer about racing one another and competing with one another and edging to get ahead of one another. This is about love and service and reciprocal uh, submission like a good family operates. What Jesus is saying is that the world has one equation. And that equation looks like this. In order to matter, you need to be great. And you become great through position and performance. What the world thinks is your value increases when you are over and above others. And is this not true? Who wants to be the little guy with no voice, no respect, no ability to be served? Our default is to idolize those who can boss people around, right? Think about Steve Jobs. How, like we praise him as this, this tech mogul all the while. He just was like the most bossy jerk in the world and everyone knew it. And yet somehow we all wanted to be like him and read his autobiography. Interestingly, even non-Christians are picking up on the fact that this is not a good way to run humanity. This does not run the world well and it does not satisfy the human soul. Going back to the same Harvard Business Review, this article by Ron Carucci, uh, it was, again, it was titled, Why Success Does Not Satisfaction. He had this great little quote I want to read to you. It's by a guy named Arthur Brooks. This guy spent years researching achievement, wealth, and satisfaction. He writes, The insatiable goals to acquire more, 
to succeed conspicuously, or that just means like to succeed very obviously, so everyone knows how good and successful I am, to be as attractive as possible, they lead us to objectify one another and even ourselves. When people see themselves as little more than their attractive bodies, their jobs, or their bank accounts, it brings great suffering. You become a heartless taskmaster to yourself, seeing yourself as nothing more than, this is a play on words, homo economicus. Love and fun are sacrificed for another day of work in search of a positive internal answer to the question, am I successful yet? We become cardboard cutouts of real people. The author of the, the article, not that quote, but the article, gives these following solutions. He says, re-examine your relationship with money. He says, re-examine your relationships with achievement. Re-examine your relationship with recognition and status. Then, shift from comparison to compassion. Shift from counting or measuring yourself, measuring others, to contribution. How much are you giving? How much are you serving? And then shift from contempt, uh, hatred for your enemy or your opponent, to connection with your opponent and your enemy and your rival. My jaw hit the floor with how Christian this is. It is like Ron Carucci read the Gospel of Matthew, read this passage specifically, summarized it into a couple of bullet points, and came up with an article. Is that not true? This list is so amazingly Christian. It's like Jesus wrote it on one degree. And one of the reasons that I continue to develop confidence in Jesus as being a truthful teacher and a good savior is because anytime I bump into something that seems right and good and true in the world, in a secular sphere, it's like Jesus has already been saying it. And these people just kind of stumbled along something that Jesus has been saying for a very long time. And so Ron Carucci is making hundreds of thousands of dollars preaching that to his executive clients when Jesus Christ gave himself to preach it to all of humanity 2,000 years ago. It, it's, it boggles my mind. But interestingly, this list of things does not make sense in the world Ron Carucci is preaching it to. Because Ron Carucci is preaching this to a secular materialist world. In the West, this is our dominant way of viewing the world, is nothing exists but what I can see, touch, and taste. Right? Don't give me your spiritual stuff. Don't give me your mumbo-jumbo. Tell me what your scientists have verified. This list does not make sense in a world of evolutionary biology, which says the survival of the fittest is what drives us. The pursuit of calories and procreation is what really matters in our DNA. In that world, in the world of the West, Ron Carucci makes no sense. Because in a world of survival of the fittest, why would you not want to be the fittest? Why would you say, no, it's okay to be weak and to love your enemies and to, to not need to amass wealth and security? You don't need any of that in a world where you might die tomorrow. It is not the logical conclusion of the secular worldview. And yet, people say it is true and right, and, I'm, and these people are paying him so much money to adjust their lives around it. So to me, it doesn't make sense in a secular worldview, but it makes so much sense in a worldview established by Scripture, and in a worldview if Jesus is real and true, because then this call here in Matthew chapter 20 to, to serve rather than dominate is the only thing that makes sense. 
It is the only thing that makes sense if Jesus is real and true. So in a secular world, why do you matter? If you are important and powerful. If you are neither important nor powerful, you will be forgotten and left behind. But in a Jesus-based world, why do you matter? In a Jesus-based world, you matter because he says you do. You matter because he loves you. And we know this is true because Jesus, as the Son of Man, was willing to give up his own greatness, his own position of power and strength in order to serve you. He gave it all up as an expression of love to ransom us so we can now live in a kingdom that is not a race but is a family. And he ends verse 28 by saying, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. In the narrative of Matthew, this is actually the very first time that Jesus gives specific reason for his life and upcoming death. He's saying, here's the purpose of it all. I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom, as a rescuing token, and I've given myself to liberate and to love many. Now, there's two ways this is true. One that you, if you're part of All Life Church, are very familiar with, so I'm going to go a little bit quickly over it, not because I want to cheapen it, but just because I think we hear it often. One of the ways we've been ransomed and rescued is we've been ransomed from death to life, from condemnation to grace. Now, because of our sinfulness and our rebelliousness, our rebelliousness to God, which every single human has, it's not meant to heap toxic shame, because of that, we deserve consequence. At its simplest, the consequence is removal from the situation. Because if, if God's restoring the world back to a thing of goodness and beauty, then there's no place for evil and rebellion, right? It's got to be removed. But in ransoming us, Jesus pays the debt that we owe God for breaking stuff, and then he takes the consequence that we deserve. Now, in that spiritual process, which I don't totally understand, what the Bible says he's done is he's transferred us out of a kingdom of darkness and placed us into a kingdom of his beloved son, into his family. He's rewritten everything. In theological terms, we often talk about redemption, atonement, and forgiveness. That's what this is about in ransoming us. But it's dangerous if we think that is only spiritual. It only is this little spiritual bubble of good news, and then we move on. So in order to preserve us from that danger, I want to tie it to something else. New spiritual life always comes with new ways of living. New spiritual life will always change the life you have right now because you will begin living a more life-filled life. So the second way we've been saved in Ransom is we've been saved from a crummy way of living. What we've been saved from is needing to run the world's hamster wheel of success. You no longer have to do that. You've been rescued off the hamster wheel of success. And Jesus is saying it will only lead you to dissatisfaction while you're waiting for his kingdom. So the good news is we've been rescued out of that and Jesus is proclaiming, my kingdom is here and you can live a better life now because I've ransomed you spiritually. So now we're freed and rescued from old cycles of performance and position and one-upsmanship. And here's where I want to end. It's by pulling all of that into what I think the heart is for all of Life Church today. 
I think our hearts need to know that we matter. Our hearts yearn to know that we matter. What do people that consider ending their own lives often say? Would it matter if I was gone tomorrow? Would anyone notice? Would anyone care? I am convinced that full living, I'm convinced that spiritual rescue depends on knowing that we matter. I'm also convinced that true life, good living, eternal life here and now comes from understanding that the needs of our hearts are okay. And they are meant to help us find satisfaction in Christ. And because of his generosity in his new kingdom, the gift of healthy Christian community. Here's what this looks like when it interacts with our need to matter, our need to be great, and Jesus' instruction to serve. I believe Jesus is diagnosing the world. I believe in my, quote, or my like summary, he's saying, you think that your need to matter, your need to feel significant will be satisfied when people are subservient to you, when people praise you that it'll be satisfied when you have position and power. It'll be satisfied when other people serve you. But that's how the Gentiles do it. That's how everyone else does it. It does not lead to satisfaction, and it is nothing like me. Jesus diagnoses that the world's equation is you matter when you're great. Now, before I get to Jesus' correct teaching, I also want to allow for a bit of misunderstanding of Jesus that as Christians, I think we sometimes are in danger of. I believe there's dangerous, a dangerous religious dead end that says, I keep my ambition and my equation of greatness, but I transplant it off of greatness and put it onto service. The way I matter is no longer being great. The way I matter is by serving. Does that make sense? Now I'm just on a different hamster wheel. I don't matter unless I serve, or I need to give up my identity and my needs because Jesus says, serve, 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 serve. That's when you matter to me. That's when you're great in my kingdom. The world says you matter when you're great. Dead-end religion says you matter when you serve. Jesus is teaching something so much more beautiful. He is correcting your need to matter, your need to feel significant will be satisfied only when you are abiding in the Father's love, demonstrated through me ransoming you, serving you by giving my life. And when you do that, you will become a force of love in the world through serving others. Believe what Jesus is saying is you matter because I love you. So theologically, spiritually, because he has ransomed us, We have an infinite account of forgiveness and grace. But relationally, we also have an infinite account of value and love that he has for us, that we get to draw off of, that we get to feast on regularly. And that becomes the spring out of which flows full living, out of which flows love and service for the people around us. So because our need to matter is good, it drives us to be satisfied in Christ and his love for us. So we no longer need to put our energy elsewhere looking for it. 
We are freed now to serve, which means to give in love. And interestingly, serving others is how we tell them that they matter. My wife and I had a hard situation two weeks ago, and we had like countless of you bring us flowers, bring us meals, send us cards. And the way that I receive those is not like, well, I'm really glad these guys checked their boxes of being good servants, right? No, on the receiving end, what I hear is, you matter, you matter, you matter, you matter. Serving others is how we tell them that they matter. And this is the gospel good news that we bring to the world, is it not? I have a friend right now who is suicidal. And he regularly calls me asking if he matters. Here's the the sad and crazy part. By the world's metric, he doesn't. This man is not great. He is not important. He is not wealthy. He's not smart. And he's not even nice. He's bitter. He's full of pain. He regularly lashes out at the people around him. But what better news could God or I offer this person than that he matters? When the world says you're just a piece of trash, go kill yourself. What's more valuable than the king of the universe laying down his life, putting aside all of his greatness to say, you matter. And I don't think Jesus plays coy with our problems or just like doesn't care. I think he sees the full picture. He sees the mess. He sees the need. But I still believe consistently in scripture, it echoes, I love you. And I will give myself to ransom you because you need my help and you matter to me. So this is Jesus' good news message to, to my heart, to you this morning, to all the needy people in the world. This is the feast of the good news of the gospel that will satisfy every human's heart if they come to the table. This is the thing that will satisfy us, that will make, uh, transform us from being consumers of attention to givers of love is when we're satisfied rather than hungry for the need for attention. When we keep our eyes on the love of God through Christ ransoming us, to know that we matter, full to the brim with love from him, able to pour it out onto others. Through our service saying you matter to God. And even here, the gospel acts as a corrective to me. Just as much as a balm, it acts as a corrective. When I get frustrated to this man, I regularly have this feeling like, just figure it out already. Just stop it. Just like receive Jesus. Like this guy's not a Christian. Just, ah. But what keeps me coming back to this frustrating relationship over and over and over is Jesus reminding me he matters. He matters to me. Would you go tell him he matters to me? Would you stay in it? Don't abandon him like the world. He doesn't deserve it, but he matters to me. Would you go again and again and again? So in summary, you matter, I've ransomed you. Is the good news that Jesus gives here. It is the good news that filled up James and John Zebedee to the point that they lived lives of humble service in suffering and persecution to the point of death and fidelity to this king. And this is the good news that will transform your life and my life and make us good news people. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving your son. This was not only Jesus laying aside his greatness, this was you being willing to let go of your son. 
And Jesus, thank you for giving up everything, the position of, of honor and entitlement and power to become the man that is delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, flogged, and crucified. Jesus, thank you that this is all an act of your love and that the kingdom you're establishing is not started through love in order to beat up everyone else, but it starts in love, it carries through in love, it transforms us in love, it moves us forward with love. Help us receive your love and be transformed and renewed. Amen.